Hey, everybody. Welcome to a Valentine's Day special episode with returning guest, Dr. Gary Lewandowski, Jr. On today's episode, we talked with Gary about his new book, Stronger Than You Think, The 10 Blind Spots That Undermine Your Relationship and How to See Past Them, which is available to you anywhere that you pick up a book. Uh, in the episode, though, we talked about things like optimal distinctiveness and what that means in a relationship, the Michelangelo phenomenon, and how to give a crapo and how that'll help your relationship a lot. Friends, colleagues, and those struck by Cupid's Arrow, welcome back to another episode of Rainbows. We are your hosts, I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by relationship research scientist, professor of psychology at Monmouth University, and author of Stronger Than You Think, The 10 Blind Spots That Undermine Your Relationship and How to See Past Them, Dr. Gary Lewandowski. Gary, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really looking forward to this. So are we. Yeah, absolutely. We're really looking forward to having you back on. It's been uh, just fun catching up, just seeing how you've been over the last few months, because we had you on, what it was... Was it November that we had your podcast on? Yeah, um, like yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we talked about breakups. We talked about self-expansion and, and your work on that in that area. But today we're going to be talking a little bit more about how to make relationships actually stronger, not just you know throw them away, right? So this is this is interesting, Gary. Like, tell us what your book's all about. We're going to be talking about it all day. So uh, you know, what's it about? Give us the spiel. Well, I mean, a, a lot of the, the book came from a course that I've taught for probably the last 15 years, you know, I, I teach a relationships course. Um, and in that course, you know, students come in and get to learn about the science of relationships. Um, now students walk through the door to that classroom with a lot of preconceived notions about what relationships are and, you know, what helps make them work and what are good signs and bad signs and, and all these kinds of things. Um, and then in the class, they're really confronted with the fact that a lot of what they thought they knew was wrong. Um, and as I explained to them, you know, any great college course you take should really change the way you think about the world. Um, and when possible, ideally, you know, those changes are based on research-based information, you know, science guides, you know, improvement in our ways of thinking about the world. And so that course, you're going to hear from students all the time, you know, how much of a difference that course has made in their lives. You know, I hear from students years later talking about, you know, how they're still applying the lessons that they learned in that course to their everyday life and, and making their relationships better or, or knowing which relationships to, to get out of. And so... Um, this is really my attempt to take that course and move it beyond the walls of my classroom and really try to, you know, upscale it in a way to, so I can, you know, bring the benefits of relationship science to a much broader audience. That's a noble cause. Yeah, you know, I, I, I you know, I, it's like, it's odd to say, but I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with the Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. Um, you yeah. know, it's the idea where, you know, you got to kind of figure out why you're doing anything. And then once you figure out your why, the what and the how really just kind of reveal themselves to you. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, you know, I, a long ago, I, I figured out that my why is really to use science to help make people's lives better. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very blue collar background, you know, from Northeast Philadelphia, born and raised and the playground's not where I spent most of my days. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like the first in my family to even go to college. And so I don't know, it's just part of that has always stuck with me in terms of just being practical. And, you know, as much as basic research is interesting and really useful, um, I've always gravitated more towards things that are more immediately um, applicable to everybody, everybody's life. And so this book, um, you know, is, is that attempt to take all of the information that we know about relationship science, or at least most of it, and make it accessible. Because it's clear to me that when Better, better decisions come from better data. And so much of that data is behind paywalls and locked away in journals and written in a way that, you know, even bright people have a hard time understanding. And so this is, you know, my translation of that work to a format that's engaging and accessible and, and hopefully just really, really helpful to people in their lives. It's brilliant. Gary, yeah. you're literally describing why we started the podcast. And I, and I love <laughs> that you uh, share the same ambition and same goals as us. I think that's awesome. That's why we have you on because we love your work and we love the stuff that you're doing. So um, let's let's get let's get into it. I'm, I love this topic. I actually started doing research for that exact reason. I took an interpersonal relationship class and it grabbed me and I was so interested in why people are so why people can be so good in relationships and why relationships can be so problematic. And, and, I, and I was trying to kind of piece that together with my personal life and with my academic life and trying to figure out, you know, how can I study this? So you are looking at these 10 blind spots. Uh, and I love, the I love the title is Stronger Than You Think because often when people are thinking about their relationships and how to improve it, it's, it's easy to look at, you know, 
why your why your relationship's struggling or what the issues are and not actually focusing on how to improve it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, our relationships, we, we can't forget the basic fact, like our relationships are really, really important to us. We cherish our relationships. I mean, they're, they're so much a part of who we are that we're protective of them, you know, as we should be. Um, and yet, you know, we, we know from, you know, all the, the work by Kahneman and others that, you know, loss aversion is a real thing. Like we're, we're worried about losing things that we care about. And so a lot of times we do have this negativity bias where we look for the bad things. And, and if you look for those things, you're going to find them. But the other side is that if you look for the good, you're going to find that as well. Um, and really, this book is an attempt to kind of help people, you know, look for those good things, the things that they're taking for granted, the things that they aren't appreciating. Um, and a lot of it's based on just some flawed assumptions that they might have. Um, and that's where the blind spots come in. Um, there's a lot of things that people think are correct and are, think that are helping their relationship that actually are undermining it and making it worse. Um, and, you know, it's just a chance to really focus on what's right instead of focus on what's wrong. Um, and it really comes from my own personal experience. It's something that I, I realized as a grad student, you know, it's, it's much like you just said, it's, you start learning about relationships. I don't know what your experience was, but, you know, as I was learning about them, I, I started falling into this medical student syndrome almost where, <laughs> right. It's like, you start hearing about like all these, you know, signs of what's wrong. You're like, oh my gosh, I have that. Mm. And you hear about this other thing and you're like, oh my gosh, I have that too. Yeah. Um, and you start really, you can start really obsessing about all these problems. Um, but then, you know, also during grad school. Um, I discovered positive psychology and I just, there's something about the idea of focusing on the strengths, focusing on what's working, focusing on, you know, what nourishes relationships and helps them flourish and helps them grow. And I think that is just such a better way to look at the world because that way, if you're wrong, you're not wrong twice, <laughs> right? Like if you look at, if you look for bad, right, you're like, you feel bad about looking for bad things and then you find it and it's like, crap, you know, now that's, now you're, you get to feel bad twice. But if you, if you look for good, you know, hopefully you find good and then everything's great. But, you know, if you look for good and then you find bad, then you only have to experience the bad side of it once. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th this book is really an attempt to help people break out of that mindset of, you know, this is what's wrong and this is what's wrong. And it's really why a lot of people, I think, don't want to pick up self-help kinds of books. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, if you have a relationship and, and you, you love your partner and everything's going great, like, why would you want to pick up a relationship book? Because you might find out something that's wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this, this takes the opposite, this approaches it from the exact opposite angle, which is, you know, your relationship's going really, really well. So let's find some other ways it's going well that maybe you haven't appreciated. This is going to just make you feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why not strengthen those weak points? Exactly. And, you know, it's like the cover of the book has a knot that's shaped in a heart, obviously, for, for lovey reasons. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the reason that image is on there is because of the, of the famous quote by FDR. Um, it said, you know, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. And so part of that is the idea that in a relationship, if things are going badly, rather than just let go of the rope and, you know, jump into some other relationship or quit or get divorced or break up, you know, tie a knot and hang on, right? Because there's a lot of things there in your relationship that you can, you know, quote unquote, tie a knot with mm -hmm. that make it worth staying. And, and it might be things you never thought of or, or haven't been seeing all this time. The other thing is, if, you know, you're already, your relationship's already going well and you already have a bunch of knots in your rope, a few more aren't going to hurt. Right. It's only going to help you, you know, hang on um, even even better. Yeah. Yeah. Through, that, through more difficult times, for sure. Yeah. I, th uh, I think one thing one thing that I kind of want to just open up with is like uh, when someone asks me about my partner, like you know, I feel like everybody kind of gets this where they'll either talk to their parents or friends and say, you know, how are things going with the relationship? what kind of responses do you expect as a researcher after writing this book? What do you think is a healthy response to that? And what do you think is an honest response? I guess? <laughs> hmm. I, you know, an honest, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think an honest response would be there's some good things and there's some bad things and we're working on the bad things to make them better. Mm -hmm. Right. And also, you know, I, I, I pause there for a second because I think the honest response should be the healthy response. Yes. I mean, that is that is a very, very healthy response. What I think people actually say is they reflexively say, oh, we're happy, we're great. Mm -hmm. But then in the back of their mind, they're not so sure, right? Because yeah. it's really actually quite difficult to know how well your relationship's going. You're a sample of one. Your relationship experience is limited. Though you know it well, it, it is still limited. Um, and we know that experience isn't the same thing as expertise. And so, you know, to really know how your relationship is going, a lot of times you just compare it to some previous relationships. Those pre previous relationships have ended likely because they weren't that great. And so you're kind of using a, an awkward comparison group to yeah. determine the health of your current relationship 
in a way that can make you feel better about it than maybe you should or worse about it than you should. And the fact is you just don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard. That's well, I, point, yeah, Sorry. yeah, and and I think I think you kind of mentioned like the ten blind spots, and I think that maybe that's exactly what you're getting at here, right? Is like how do you compare something where you know in one area, one of these ten blind spots, or the many others that I imagine exist, you know, something didn't work, and as a consequence, that relationship ended. But it's not like it's not like all of them are bad, right? Like I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out what I'm trying to say here, and I can't articulate it. Yeah. Uh, I- like my, I, have same, I have the same thought though, Kyle. It's, yeah. it's interesting. And I've had this thought recent, like, you know, in all my relationships, it's kind of funny because the metrics that we're using, as you said, is our previous relationships with our exes. And, you know, they could be good. They could be bad, just like you said, Kyle. But like, we are making that comparison to what our goals are, our future is based on relationships that didn't work. And so we're trying to kind of piece together what makes this relationship better or worth staying in, you know? Yeah, we also, you know, one of the other things we use as a point of comparison is what we see on social media. True. Which, you know, we intellectually know that what we see on social media is a greatest hits reel, right? I mean, it's a carefully curated type of, you know, self-presentation that people are putting on there to cultivate a a certain perspective on their relationship. Um, But we still see that and we think like, oh my gosh, they must have this great, great relationship. And so if you're not having these super exciting looking date nights and, you know, painting parties and whatever it is that people are doing together you can start feeling really bad about your relationship really easily yeah, no without realizing, you know, and the crazy thing is the research shows that couples that post more about their relationship on Facebook and things like that are actually less secure in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Nobody's, and, nobody's posting, like everybody's curating what they're posting. Nobody's posting. Yeah. We stayed up until 2am fighting, right? Like, <laughs> sure. like just nobody's going to do that. It's just not something that you do unless you're Oh, I mean, maybe somebody does, but that would be weird in and of itself, I suppose. <laughs> right. But then you, you scroll through all of those greatest hits of all these other couples relationships and you start, you know, the base rate of how good things are at all times starts to mess with you a little bit. Right. Yeah. yeah. You start thinking like, wait, we're not super happy at all times. So <laughs> there's a problem. You know, we, we disagreed about something the other day. And so that's a problem because it, no one else is doing that. And, you know, you're, you're just wrong. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's this myth of, of perfection. It's something I call, you know, it's one of the myths in the book that I call the perfection trap. You know, it, it's one we are, we don't realize that it's particularly in America, we're much more romantic about relationships than most of the world, right? Like we, we believe in love at first sight and we believe that love is going to be perfect. And so we fall into this trap where, and we almost feel like self-righteous and like noble about it. Like, no, 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 <laughs> I only expect the best. Like I demand that my partner be absolutely perfect in every possible way. Um, and what we call this in the research is you're a maximizer. You're someone who, you know, demands only the best. And, you know, maybe that's okay, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, getting the best iPhone. But when it comes to people, that's really hard to accomplish. Um, because it also sets you up for this mindset where, you know, I finally demand the best. And I, while I think you're the best, I'm going to stick around. But as soon as I think there's something better, I'm going to move on. Right. And that's really not how we expect relationships to go. We expect more of a until death do us part and not a until someone else comes along who's better. Right. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, this it's this myth of maximization that, you know, I'm constantly going to try to have this best thing that I can possibly have. But what we see is that people that approach life that way are actually, you know, less happy. They're less optimistic. They have lower self-esteem, less life satisfaction. They're just not doing as well. Yeah, that's tough. I'd, I'd kind of imagine it's sort of like, you know, somebody can't score 10 out of 10 on every possible category, right? Like sure. every important category that for you in a relationship. And so part of it, I suppose, is kind of learning, okay, what what scores am I willing to take sevens on? <laughs> you know what I right. mean? And, and yeah. where, where do I expect those tens and where do they need to be? And and to me, that maybe is speaking to kind of the difference between North American views on relationships and, and views elsewhere in the world. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in other parts of the world, I mean, they take more of this golden mean perspective where, you know, you don't, it's, it's about happiness and moderation. And so it's exactly like you described, like everything doesn't have to be a 10 out of 10, you know, some seven out of 10s are acceptable because, you know, moderation is okay. Like you don't have to be the best in every single thing. Um, And it's just, it's frankly just more realistic and less presumptive, right? Who are you to expect perfection out of other people? When you know, I mean, you, part of you knows you're not perfect or you should know that, right? <laughs> right? Like you should realize that, like, you know, really, like, are you all, are you perfect tens on everything? You're not like, 
you're you're maybe really smart, but you can be moody and a little bit prickly, right? I mean, you have certain things that are just aren't perfect. And so who are you to expect perfection when you yourself are not, you know, rising to that same threshold? Yeah. Yeah. Gary, I have a question about that. The, sure. There's a really cool, it's, I'm, I'm thinking of deal breakers. That's mm-hmm. essentially what we're kind of getting at here, right? Like what are your deal breakers in a relationship and how, you know, how do people com- compromise? What, how do they know when to compromise on certain things and say, oh, okay, that's, that's something I don't like about this person or, you know, I don't necessarily vibe with, but there's all these other things that are good. So I'll, I'll stay within that relationship. How do people decide those deal breakers and what are the main deal breakers that people, you know, have? Um, you know, the, the, what they, what people should do is not necessarily what they do. Um, <laughs> yeah. What they should do is really spend some time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we don't, we all, we all think we know ourselves better than we really do. And, you know, as much as you think you know yourself and spend a lot of time thinking about yourself, you just don't. And there's lots of studies that show we just don't spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. And in fact, we'd rather shock ourselves with electric than, you know, spend some time thinking to, about ourselves. So <laughs> the, pro- the prospects for how much we think about our relationship aren't much greater. And so people don't spend as much time thinking about these things as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, even, even when people do make predictions about what they think they want in a relationship and, you know, what things are important to them, um, the research shows when people are actually put to the test, they don't really follow any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of bad at predicting our behavior in this way. Um, but I think it all just goes back to people just not knowing themselves that well and not actually thinking about it that much. Right. You know, I always say to, you know, the students in my class, like, and you know, a lot of these findings apply to people who have never had a class on relationships and never have spent time thinking about this in this objective scientific way. And so if you spend more time thinking about it in this way, it should help prevent a lot of these problems. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you talk about deal breakers, like one of the big deal breakers is, you know, a partner who's too needy. And so, you know, that speaks directly to one of the other myths, which is, you know, people think that for a relationship to be successful, you and your partner need to be super close. Um, you don't, right? I mean, you, you need to be close, right? You need to have that an emotional connection with them. But it's it's not that the relationships that spend every waking moment together and you know completely have merged their identities are, is actually the best way to approach a relationship. In many ways, it's it's a bad way to approach a relationship. Right. Yeah. You don't want to completely suck out all the uniqueness within each individual in the relationship, right? Yeah. You need a you know we talk about it in other contexts, but this idea of optimal distinctiveness. Right. You know, I, I need to have some parts of me that are just me. And then, you know, part of me can go into the we. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you need to also have part of you that's separate from me. And so, you know, we need to have this, you know, nice balance. And it's a push and pull of, of blending our identities, but also remaining our own individual selves. Yeah. Yeah. You have to know the difference between you, me and we. A lot of relationship success is about, you know, taking the me and, and blending it into a we. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want to do it where you completely lose everything about who you were before. That, that's not healthy either. Yeah. Because as soon as you, I, I mean, I feel like I've seen that in people, in, in relationships as well. You can see people that kind of like, fo- like just take the form of whoever they're with uh, and kind of like assume a new identity based on whoever the person they're dating's, you know, whatever their personality is. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's like they're a liquid and they're, you know, they're pouring themselves into whatever, you know, shaped vessel their, their partner is and they just take on that exact shape. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not like, that's not going to give you that long term, you know, the, the longevity of a relationship where you're really giving both, you know, that relationship perspective and your individual, like personalized perspective into that, you know, p- partnership. Right. Because, you know, you, you need more equality in relationships, you know, both, you know, the best relationships are, you know, a, a blending of equals who both have independence and have shared power and decision making and all those types of things. And so, you know, fully, you know, changing yourself to be more like your partner is, is really not the way to go. It, it too much, too much of a shift in the balance of power, I think. Mm-hmm. On that kind of perspective, Gary, what are your thoughts on, uh, I've heard varying degrees of people's perspective on this. Uh, what are your thoughts on changing somebody that you're with, you know, trying to change them? What does that bring up in your head? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not correct. Well, specifically, it brings up chapter six. Okay, um, there you go. <laughs> but no, so there's actually a whole chapter d- devoted to this because I think right. it is like one of the most common things that people struggle with awesome. because we know that relationships change people's sense of self. You know, I've done a lot of relationship uh, research myself on, on this you know, about how, you know, who you are gets shifted by your relationships uh, for, for good and for bad. Um, but we, we start thinking like, well, if, if relationships change us, then we should help our partner change who they are. 
bad idea because we know that, you know, personality is largely pretty stable. And when people start changing their personality, um, it makes them less happy, less satisfied with life. Um, we also know that your, what you think is good for them may not actually be good for them. And the ways you go about trying to change your partner generally aren't well done or well executed. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to make my boyfriend uh, be a better communicator and I'm going to do it by constantly nagging and harassing him and, and making him feel guilty about not communicating enough. And, and no, 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 no. That, that's, that's not how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's just going to create, you know, more of a drive for distance. And, you know, it's really, you can see the flaw in this way of thinking if you just shift perspective, right? What if your partner decided that you were only going to be a good partner and, and fully worthy of being loved if you changed X, Y, and Z about who you are? Mm. You would you would say, like, what the hell is that? Like, that's not okay, <laughs> right? It, it's just, it's a fundamentally flawed idea that, you know, we're going to be there to, to change our partner and that we know what's best for them. It, it, it's, you know, super presumptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Super problematic. I think what's like, how do you go about to do it in a way that's the way that I see it is like, it's great to be when and talking about your self expand. I mean, thinking about your last episode that we had you uh, on for with where we talked about self expansion. I mean, I'm thinking I'm always thinking about how to improve myself. And I want to kind of have a partner that does that as well. And that's what I've looked for in, in my partner. Yeah. Um, you know, but how do you endorse that whenever they're like, I know I want to change on these things, but you can't be pushing me to do it, you know? Yeah, no, that's, it's actually the perfect question, right? And, you know, the fact that, like you just described, if you're someone who is a self-described expander, you should look for someone who is also an expander because the research shows when you match styles with somebody else, it's better for your relationship. So that, that's, that's really smart. Um, and the thing is, you know, we can't change our partner. We shouldn't seek to change or aspire to be the change agent for our partner, but our partner is going to want to change and they want relationship support, right? I mean, that's probably why we're in relationships to have a supportive partner. Um, so what we really need to do is embrace something, you know, I talk about in the book, the Michelangelo phenomenon. Mm. Um, and it's the idea of helping to sculpt your partner. And now that sounds contradictory to what I just said about, you know, you shouldn't be the change agent, but you know, if you learn a little bit about what Michelangelo thought about sculpting, um, it actually is quite consistent. What he thought was that you weren't there to create something. You were there to help reveal what was already there. Mm. And so, you know, there's a quote about how, you know, his job was to scrape away the marble to reveal the angel within. Um, and so your job is to help your partner reveal their inner angel by letting them decide what that looks like. They get to decide who they want to be and how they want to be it. Your job is to just play the supporting role. And so, um, you know, one of the examples I give in the book is if your partner you know, says that they want to be more adventurous, then you help, you know, maybe you find a, a paddleboarding class that they can take or, you know, suggest that you guys both go on a, on a hiking trail you've never been on. Um, subtle things like that is supportive where, you know, they get the ball rolling, so to speak, and then you just help keep it going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like, I love that analogy. It's perfect, the Michelangelo analogy. But, and I, and my thought is that, I, and that what I've heard from my partner as well is that, you know, I don't let me let me rephrase this. I don't want to miss my partner and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yep, yep. <laughs> careful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna leave that out. Wait, we're gonna cut that. Um, so I mean alarm bells are going off inside I'm, my head. I'm like, oh god. Be careful here, man. You need to be real careful. Um one thing that I that I think is like a really important sentiment and that I really like about that as well is that you know you're not you're not in love or you're not with the person for who they could be. It's who they are at this moment. And then you're along for the ride more or less. Yeah. And that's because that's exactly what you want from them. Mm. Right. I mean, there, there's that kind of implied reciprocity where we are who we are. I love you because of who you are. You love me for who I am. Not, you know, and a lot of it is we like to fall, we get into these long-term relationships because dating can be exhausting with, we're always trying to put on the best version of ourselves and in our relationships, we're with those people because we know we can be our authentic selves. And so, you know, if you start to dislike who I authentically am and want to change it, even if it's for the better, it feels unsupportive. It feels like you're not accepting me for who I am. Um, and we, we know that people like to be with relationship partners, friends, roommates, other people that see them as they see themselves. And so if I start to suspect that you don't see me the same way I see myself, it starts to create distance. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one one prime example of this is like, you know, working out, uh, you know, whenever you get that freshman 15 or the, you know, new relationship 20 or whatever it is, or Kyle, <laughs> is it, is it going to be 30, like firstborn 30? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got a got a new one, newborn on the way. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Yeah, good uh, luck with that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I'll ask you later if you've got any tips. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, with that, I mean, it's obviously if you see yourself as you know you're not happy with your body, and your partner's like, yeah, I mean, like I've seen you more fit, but I want to be supportive. I feel like that one is often uh, fraught with uh, error on, especially male sides. You know, trying to be supportive, but also coming across as being quite rude. Yeah, there's a lot of danger there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a tough, that's a tough needle to thread sometimes. But I, I think the best way to handle that is, you know, I, I think you're great the way you are, but I'm happy to support whatever it is you want to do. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> without getting into specifics about, you know, goal weights and activities and things like that. And, you know, and then in practice, follow through with some authentic support. Like, if they need time to work out and you can free up some time by doing the dishes or doing more things you know, around the house or watching the kids or spending more time at work, you know, whatever it happens to be, um, you know, look for, look for ways to offer that support. And ideally that support that you're giving is support that they don't necessarily explicitly notice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's something we, you know, I talk about it in um, chapter 10, you know, invisible support. We often want our partners to be supportive and we get really upset when we don't see them supporting us. But the best support in relationships is actually the support you don't see. Um, when we get too much support from our partners that we see, it can actually start making us feel worse about ourselves. Absolutely. It, I, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about support because this is the work that I do as well, Gary. And I love that you brought up invisible support. Um, let's talk a little bit about you know what support can help in these situations and what support can be damaging, even though it's well-intentioned, right? I find that mm-hmm. uh, invisible support is a really cool line of work. Uh, and, and, and I... Men, I think in general, uh, you know, we tend to give less emotional support and more informational and instrumental support. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Um, And I'm not going to I'm not going to take the the fire away from you, Gary. You have you have the book. You have all this work on in the book. So I want you to talk about it instead of me babbling. (laughs) Well, I mean, no, you're you know, in this particular area, you're you're certainly probably much more expert than I am. But I, I think, you know, this idea of, you know, instrumental versus emotional support a lot of times we want to you know, leap into a problem solving mode with our, with our partner and whether they want it or not. Yeah. Um, but if we're trying to solve our partner's problems, especially if they don't ask for it, it, there's an implication there that we think they can't solve it on their own. Yeah. And that's where it starts to undermine feelings of self-esteem and competence, confidence in, in, in those, those types of areas. Um, and so that's why invisible support is so useful. It's, it's, I'm helping you without, any hint of letting on that I think you can't do it. And a lot of times, you know, our partners don't even, they, I mean, it's invisible, so they don't notice it. And so it's helping them without any risk of harming, uh, you know, their self views, which, which is useful. Yeah, I think that's the coolest thing. I mean, most people in support literature and, you know, in, in relationship research, they think, oh, yeah, support, like, it can't be bad if you're supporting right. a partner, right? And it's the, you know, there's a theory, the, the match, the matching, matching support theory. And the idea that, you know, if you're not matching the, the your partner's needs, then you're going to actually do damage in the end. And yeah, I, you know, it, sorry, it just speaks, it just speaks to, you know, the, the global theme of of the book and these blind spots is exactly what you just said is like so many just people assume that support, support, good, more support, better. <laughs> um, and it's just not that simple. I mean, as much as people are ready to acknowledge that relationships are difficult and complicated, they really do a, a good job trying to oversimplify in a way that is harmful. And so, you know, all support isn't created equal and it, it can actually, you know, hurt our partner's self-esteem, increase their anxiety, make them more uh, depressed and angry. It feels condescending in, in some contexts. And so, you know, the other, the other p- difficult part about invisible support is you have to acknowledge that it's, it's invisible and it should stay invisible, yeah. right? In the sense that, you know, you can't sort of run all this, these supportive behaviors in the background, right? aspiring for it to be invisible support and then get ticked off when your partner doesn't notice. Absolutely. Yeah. Because your partner, chances are, is not going to notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it, it's something I talk about too, is that, you know, sacrifice, we, we know that, you know, part of being in a relationship is sacrificing for our partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good news is, is that when we sacrifice for our partner it, it increases commitment, 
The bad news is, is it doesn't necessarily increase satisfaction or happiness. It also doesn't always increase commitment in our partner. Um, when it does work, it only works, according to one study at least, on days when you're not stressed out and not you know experiencing a bunch of hassles. Mm. I don't know about you guys, but I don't experience many of those days. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, that, that's that's a tough ask. And so, you know, if it's only going to be helpful in, this, in a limited way, in a limited context, um, and it doesn't help our partner be more committed, you have to kind of wonder what you're doing. And the reason why our partner doesn't, you know, get the benefits of our sacrifices. 50% of the time, they don't notice it, right? They don't realize all the times that you could have complained about something that you didn't, that you were in a bad mood, but you pretended that you were in a good mood, right? I mean, there's a bunch of things that they're just not going to be privy to. Yeah. And so if you feel like you're making a bunch of sacrifice, doing a bunch of things for your partner, but it's not helping them and it's not helping you and worse, you feel like they don't notice. I mean, you're, you're setting up a, a re- pretty toxic combination to really uh, undermine your relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you're trying to make that, you know, those things, your, your partner's life easier by doing invisible support, like, you know, doing the dishes or doing tasks that they, they, they'll have to do, but it'll, it'll reduce their stress. Like, that's great. But once you start asking for that recognition, it's, it becomes much different uh, and not as supportive. <laughs> in a right. Way. You, end, you end up in those fights like, well, you could have thanked me for doing the dishes. Well, I never asked you to do the dishes. Yeah. In fact, I didn't, you know, and it's like, wow, now this thing that really could have been a, a net positive starts to be like, oh, why should I ever bother? Mm-hmm. It's a minefield that, you know, you it started off so good and then it just ends up, can end up so bad. Yeah. yeah. And, and with that invisible support, it's like, you know, y- you do it and you don't ask for that recognition and you, and you hope that your partner does it and doesn't ask for that recognition. But once, yeah, I, I can, I can envision those fights where they're like, yeah, I did the dishes like all week <laughs> <laughs> and you never said anything. It's like, well, that's, it was because you were doing it to support me invisibly, but now you're making it visible. <laughs> Yeah, we know that, you know, when people are engaged in supportive behaviors or sacrifice behaviors, if they're doing it for the good of the relationship, it's a net positive. But if they think they're doing it because they're obligated and it's like, oh, I have to do this because this is part of my job, um, it's not helpful, mm-hmm. right? And so it, again, just kind of speaks to this idea is that, you know, is sacrifice for your relationship good? Well, generally. Is support for your relationship good? Well, generally. Yeah. But there's myths and blind spots that we have associated with these concepts where if we don't apply it quite the correct way, like I've been saying, you, you can just do a lot more harm than good. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Gary, here's a, here's sort of a question for you. And then, and then I actually want to move on because I've got two questions that I think are important that I'd really love to get to, but I want to get your thoughts on this. So I'm busy working on my comprehensive exam, which is a big exam that graduate students mm-hmm. have to write. And um, in some ways it's performative, but you've got to get it done. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, so I've been super busy and my wife's been really busy with work. And so one of the ways that we are trying to support each other, and I think it may, maybe in some sense, now that I've listened to this, maybe this is a form of invisible support that we've kind of foisted upon each other. But one thing that we're doing is we're actually, we started reaching out to family members, ask, you know, my, my family and her family have offered to make meals for us. And so that's something where suddenly we're like, yeah, okay, we'll take that. That's that's something that we'll gladly accept at this particular moment. But the other thing that we're doing is we're we've gotten into um, you, like uh, it's called fresh prep, and I'm sure there's an equivalent where you are, but they deliver all the ingredients that you need to make a meal. And so uh-huh. part of part of what we're trying to do is shift some of that work away from going to the grocery store and planning the meal and all that and having more time where it's just us, where we're getting to try something new in the kitchen, make something that we haven't made before. Is that, can that be a form of invisible support or is that a different kind of support that, that I'm not aware of? Um, I don't, I'm not so sure it would count as invisible just because you're, you're doing it in such a planful, mindful way. Um, and you see it happening. I, I think it's super smart. Um, I think the, anytime you can offload tasks that give you more time to focus on what's really important, like your relationship, you're, you're doing a smart thing, right? I mean, time is the one non-renewable resource, right? And so time is immensely beneficial, beneficial. Um, and you know, the part that I really liked in, in hearing what you just described is your meal making together. Right. Like this idea of, you know, you kept saying it was like new and different. And, you know, we, we know, for, you know, we talked about this last time. Yeah. With self-expansion. It's just, you know, you and your partner together doing things that are new and different. You know, I'm sure some of these meal preps aren't the easiest thing. So it's a little bit challenging, too. But you're, you're working through it together and um, kind of problem solving along the way is really fantastic. 
And so, you know, in, in some ways, because you're helping your relationship, maybe in an unanticipated way, there's some aspects of an invisible support there. Okay. Know? Yeah, no, I, I just want to kind of get your insight on that. I think it's uh, one thing that I'll, I'll just quickly add this, uh, an anecdote about myself is that I know that I'm, I don't share well in the kitchen. And so when I'm cooking, I need to cook. Like I, I find it very challenging to have other people in my space. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's part of it for me as well. It's like, okay, let's try something new together. Let's do something different together. And let's do it in a way that I can sort of relinquish some of my own anxieties, whatever they are in the kitchen, right? <laughs> well, you know, and in that context, some of the invisible kind of support and sacrifice you're doing is, is not cursing your wife out and, you know, going full. <laughs> <laughs> Gordon Ramsay on her, you know, for getting in your personal space. And so she may not realize all those times you're stifling, you know, the anger, but uh, it's good for your relationship. Mm -hmm. Oh, good, good. Yeah. And I think like with your family too, Kyle, like your family making those meals, they're providing what I, what I would consider solicitous support, which is like, they're expressing concern for you and, and Colleen. Uh, and they're enabling you, the recipients, to avoid unwanted tasks, which is which is generally considered solicitous. Okay. But that can also be problematic in different ways uh, sure. if, if it's, you know, with your partner and they're saying, you know, that's where, like Gary said, you can have those kind of self-esteem responses or self-efficacy responses where you're like, okay, well, they don't think I can handle this. So they're trying to take stuff off my, you know, off my chest. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a good but the point. But meal, meal prep sounds optimally you should make me a meal sometime oh yeah once <laughs> once this all uh, dies down I'll, I'll have you over I'll make something <laughs> whip something up together yeah uh <laughs> gary on that on you know on the support topic um as we said you know men often are in literature they've been shown to you know use more problem solving or you know instrumental support uh, and that's not always the the best option especially if they have you know they're in a heterosexual relationship with a female often emotional support is is rated as some of the most positive response like type support support you can give mm -hmm. what can we do as men to improve our really shitty adaptability <laughs> i guess is what i'm trying to get at because <laughs> I've, I've laid victim I'm, I'm a victim of this as well as i often try and problem solve when i shouldn't be you know i, I think some of it just harkens back to better communication skills mm. Um, you know, and I talk about in one of the chapters about, you know, this myth about arguing and we shouldn't argue and, you know, how to better have communication with, with your partner. And one of the things I suggest is this idea that to, to really help understand your partner better, which is, you know, the nexus of emotional support is that you have to give a crapo and crapo is a, is an acronym, which is, you know, really focusing on some active listening techniques. Um, like when your partner is having trouble rather than trying to solve the problem, you want to clarify, right? That's the C in crapo. Um, clarify to make sure you really understand what, what the problem is. Um, the R is you want to reflect feelings, right? You want to show empathy, show that you're understanding some of the emotions that are coming through. Um, and then that's, again, clearly, obviously a, a foundation of emotional support. You want to, you know, be attending. That's the A. Um, that's using your nonverbals. P is paraphrasing, kind of, you know, showing that you're understanding what they're saying by repeating things back to them in your own words. Um, and then the last one, uh, the last letter in Crapo is O, which is, you know, ask them open-ended questions, like let them give them the forum to kind of talk things out on their own versus you jumping in saying, you know what you should do? You should just do this. You know, if you have an idea of what you think they might do, um, you can do something I call breadcrumbing and just kind of like with questions, just kind of lead them down the path perhaps. Mm -hmm. And maybe they, they, they take your suggestion and they end up exactly where you hope they would be. Um, but maybe by asking them some of these questions, they can problem solve on their own. Amazing. Crapo. Crapo. I'm actually going to use this in my life. This is, that's actually really good. You know, active listening is such a, such, it was such an interesting concept that I loved and I understood for a day and completely forgot how to use <laughs> as you can probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally, you know, it, I've carried it with me. You know, when I was an undergrad, I thought I was going to be a clinical psychologist and I had a counseling strategies class and we talked a ton about Carl Rogers and unconditional positive regard and crapo. Um, and, you know, I've clearly moved away from, from that path. Um, but it's always something, you know, as though it's a counseling strategy or technique, I mean, if you can just get good at what I call giving a crapo, you're automatically going to be a better relationship partner. Not only that, I mean, you're gonna be a better friend, you're gonna be better everything, but like, it just, there's so few people in our lives that really actually authentically listen to us that when you have a partner who really does give a crapo, it, it's, it's a life-changing experience. Yeah. And it it takes work like that, that that takes a lot of attention and work to be you know engaging in that kind of you know listening and responding certainly i mean it, it's it's a skill and it's part of it is just realizing from the from the jump that 
it's not about giving advice. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't want to give advice, have, you know, unsolicited advice. It's the worst kind. Um, people want to feel felt heard and felt understood. And so, you know, as I, as I point out in the book, um, you know, to, in order to spell crapo, I had to make R reflect feelings, but really what the R is, is empathy. Um, but what the R could, could stand for is really important because that idea of mirroring back and understanding the underlying feeling that someone's expressing to you is probably the most important letter in there. Because as much as your, your partner's complaining about, you know, what their boss did at work and blah, you know, whatever it happens to be, um, really there's an emotion there and it, it's, it could be frustration. It could be anger. It could be that your partner feels un, unappreciated, right. And, or undermined, or, you know, there's something more to it. And if you start approaching conversations with your partner from that frame, you're going to understand them better. They're going to felt, they're going to feel more understood and your relationship's going to thrive because of it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Last last question before we jump into the blind spots, Gary, because we've been delaying this. I mean, we can talk for hours with you. You're <laughs> uh, we, we love having you on. Um, we've hit a lot of these blind spots kind of along the way. So we're, we're doing all right. Yeah, yeah. I hope we're getting there. It's, I have a question about uh, just relationships in general. Is fighting good in a relationship? Generally speaking, yes. You know, I mean, it depends on what, it depends on what kind of fight, I guess you're, you know, I, fighting is, is kind of the more extreme form. You know, I, I always say that arguing is a good sign. Mm. You know, you'll hear couples kind of proudly proclaim like, well, you know, so-and-so and so, you know, we have never had a fight yeah. and they say it with such pride. And every time I hear it, I'm like, Ooh, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're in a relationship with someone who's actually your equal and you share power and you know, you're two independent adults who think for themselves, how are you not going to have arguments yeah. about things? It just, it seems impossible to me. And it's like, the only way to not have arguments is to not voice your opinion mm-hmm. ever, right? And so the lack of arguments is a, is a real problem. Um, and what ultimately ends up happening is people who start off with this idea that arguments are bad, you know, you can, you can pull that off early on. Early on in a relationship, things are all going so well, there's, there's nothing to argue about. And so you start to try to keep that streak alive and, you know, things come up and you let them go because we don't fight comes up again. We don't fight. We don't fight. I'm going to let that go. Okay, whatever. And then eventually, all of a sudden, one one last thing happens and you explode, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, you know, they, they left some laundry on the floor and didn't put it, you know, in, in the laundry basket. And then you flip out and then you start, you know, like a, like a lawyer presenting their case. It's not just the, you know, shirt that you left on the floor. It's wow, this just shows what an inconsiderate person you are because you've done this and this and this and this. And, you know, it, it, it's what we call kitchen thinking. Like you've been thinking about all these things and then kitchen sinking is you throw the entire kitchen sink at your partner mm-hmm. all at once because you don't want to fight. And so rather than, you know, saving things up and having these major battles, what I always suggest is, you know, be willing to engage in several minor skirmishes along the way. Like you can have the, these little, you know, uh, points of friction and little bits of conflict and, and, you know, those stave off those bigger blowups. Yeah. So, you know, in that way, arguments are, are certainly helpful. Yeah. So how do you, how do you as a partner, how do you fight clean? How do you, you know, how do you, <laughs> how do you do it in not a dirty way that's going to make things worse? Yeah. What's the Geneva convention of, <laughs> of relational arguments, like relational fighting? Um, well, I always say, I always say, like, you know, when I give talks and things that, you know, the first rule of relationship fight club is it's not you against your partner. It's you against, it's you both against the problem. Mm. Right. And so if relationship fight club, if you go into that with this idea that, you know, it's me against you, then it becomes about winning and relationship, you know, disputes and conflict and arguments. It's not about winning because if one person wins, it means the other person loses. And another person is someone you love, who's a part of who you are. Like you don't want them to lose. So you have to kind of, you know, fight the superordinate goal of, you know, we have this problem, like we're having this um, difficult time with arranging childcare and pickups and drop-offs and things like that, rather than, you know, you being selfish and not wanting to do it and me doing it for you. Like what, what is actually the problem and how can we both together as a team, right? Work towards the solution. Mm -hmm. I think you really missed out there, Gary. The first rule of relationship fight club is that we talk about relationship fight club. (laughs) (laughs) True. True. (laughs) I think those are like, those are really interesting points. And I think like for me, you know, there's so much that can be learned from your book. Obviously I'm excited to read it and, and, and the, all of the research that you're citing in it is 
what makes it so much more exciting to to refer to our listeners because that's what we're all about is you know using empirical data to drive intention and change within people and so I'm I'm loving this. Do you have any Valentine's Day tips for, you know, those that either have been accused of not being romantic enough or um, you know even those that are romantic? Uh yeah, I mean I I think Valentine's Day is, is, you know, it, it's kind of the Super Bowl for relationship scientists, right? It's like, it's like our big day. And so we get asked about Valentine's Day a lot. And people always ask if I like Valentine's Day. Um, and, and as much as I like the idea that we have a day dedicated to kind of celebrating relationships, generally speaking, I, I think it's kind of screwed up, right? Because the way we celebrate Valentine's Day a lot of ways is with material goods. And there's always these commercials about how kisses begin and, you know, why you should go to certain people to get jewelry and, and all that. Um, <laughs> which I think completely misses, misses the point. And so um, to answer your question, I would say, you know, it's really not about what you buy. You know, it's not about jewelry. It's not really about flowers and chocolates and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a chance to kind of, um, I think people would be better off in relationships if they, if they took Valentine's Day as a chance to discuss the state of their union, right? Where it's, we, we take this day to celebrate our relationship, but also have a, dis, a discussion about where this relationship is going and you know how we can improve and how we can do better and, and even more what we appreciate about each other. Mm. Um, and that's, that, that's more of a procedural thing. But you know, if you want to do something romantic, I, I think you know, like a, a heartfelt card, something you made on your own, you know, write a poem, those, those kinds of things are always well appreciated. Um, we don't do them because they take time and it, can be, it seems a little awkward. Um, but those kinds of ways of celebrating our relationship are going to be much better than, you know, buying another heart-shaped box of chocolate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, Gary, I've got two questions, and you can pass on both or neither or whatever. You can do whatever you want with them. First question, what is the most important blind spot? The most important blind spot, I think, is how we define love. I think we focus way too much on the idea of love as passionate love, where it's about attraction and chemistry and just that spark and arousal and attraction um, and not nearly enough time focusing on companionate love, which is, mm. you know, comfortable, affectionate, trusting love for someone who we like and really enjoy spending time with. Mm. Fantastic. Beautiful answer. My second question is, what is the most easily resolved blind spot? Hmm. I, I actually, I mean, it's the one we already talked about, um, but I think it's the resistance to arguing and the communication one. Um, I, I think we need to just be more willing to engage our partner in conversation about differences and, and things that we're struggling with. Um, we know that the, the relationships that do that are better. We know that the relationships that don't engage in those conversations are worse. And so it's just, a, it's a willingness to have some, you know, potentially tough conversations, but it's, it's the type of relationship work that once we do it is going to benefit our relationship for a long time. I think that's great. I think, um, Anybody listening to this on Valentine's Day, if you're looking for a fantastic, empirically reviewed uh, Valentine's Day gift that'll make do far better for you than that box of chocolate that Gary was talking about earlier, Gary, you already said it. It's that state of the union. Today's the day. Get in there. Get in the trenches and have that conversation that you haven't really wanted to have. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, what better way to better your relationship than to do everything that we've been talking about today? And uh, if you can sell it as something pre-planned. All the better for you. Yeah, it can just be as simple as you know, sitting over dinner and just, hey, you know, what's what's something that you really appreciate about each other? You know, what what's what do you think is going really well and really? And you just fo focus on all the good stuff. You don't even have to focus on things that you want to improve. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in some ways, that that's even better. And I think like opening that up by saying something that you actually really do care about or you value in your partner might be better than saying, "What do you value about me?" <laughs> but it's true though i mean I, I think that's like it's amazing advice but i can imagine our view some of our viewers like naively being like what do you what's the most important thing about me yeah <laughs> don't do that i'm giving it up first. No, absolutely right yeah. and, I, and i'm like i'm hesitant because i'm i'm lazy like that where i'm like oh what do you care like what is your opinion on this before i give mine right and i think that that's that shows that you care and that shows that you, you know you're thinking about what you value in your partner i think that's really important well, and you know, we got we got together with our partner way back whenever our relationship started for some really good reasons, and we're with them for even better reasons. That they're one of our favorite people in the world, right? And chances are they're our best friend. Mm. And you know, too often life gets in the way, and the comp competing demands for our time kind of intrude on, you know, allowing us to realize how great our partner is. And so, you know, as, as the whole book is about, you know, the relationships 
really stronger than we think, and we just need to take the time to appreciate them. Yeah, Gary, one last thing just before we go. I mean, we always ask this. Myth, misconception, something that we can just debunk nice and easy for us here. Nice and easy. Oh, geez. <laughs> I, I think the one simple one is um, we, we give, we put too, way too much emphasis on sex and you don't need to have as much sex as you think to keep your relationship going strong. In fact, the magic number for relationships in terms of how much sex you should have to benefit it is once a week. Okay. There you go. Ask and, and answered. And so once a week on average, <laughs> does that mean we have to stockpile on weekends here? <laughs> you might, you know, you, you know, it was once a week on average. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to go into that any further. I think that's... <laughs> well, just think though, if you're at the end of the year and you're, you're lagging behind, you can have a real exciting couple weeks. Uh, yeah. Like, that's man, we're, we're about five weeks behind here. Yeah. <laughs> so Gary, I mean, I, I love that myth and I, I kind of want to talk about that because, you know, sex is, it's made to be such a huge part of romantic relationships. So, you know, what do we need to talk about or what do we, how do we need to reframe it? Um, and how should we treat sex as, as in, in couples? You know, sex is important, right? I mean, it's a big part of what makes our romantic relationships feel romantic, right? I mean, if we're having relationships with our best friend, I mean, it's the sex part that takes it in from best friend to, you know, best friend plus, right? And so, you know, the fact is sex is a really enjoyable experience um, and it's it's an easy thing to keep track of. And so that's where it starts to get tricky, right? Because we can keep track of how much sex we're having. We can count how much sex we're having. And so people become overly focused on the idea that how much sex we have is a clear indicator of how good our relationship is. When the research shows that that's anything but the case, right? Um you know, people who have more sex don't have better relationships. And that's true now. And that's true when people, you know, researchers track relationships over several years. Um, it's just, it's not this clear cut indicator that people think it is. Um, and in fact, in relationships that are worse, they start having more sex, mm. right? And so people tend to use sex as a way to fix relationships when it's also not that either, right? And so, you know, maybe you guys have heard of, you know, sex challenges, you know, people will say, you know, you know, to fix our relationship, we're going to do this seven day sex challenge where we have to have sex every single day for seven straight days. Um, and, you know, for the more ambitious, there's 30 day sex challenges. Um, but the idea is, you know, if sex or lack thereof is a bad indicator of our relationship, if we have more sex, we're, that's going to fix it. And so researchers have actually done research on this and brought couples in, basically essentially flipped a coin. Some people just kind of proceeded as, as is the other group were assigned to this, you know, they didn't call it this, but it's like the sex challenge condition where they're, they're you know, having sex on, you know, consecutive days. Um, and what they found was the sex challenge condition didn't help relationships. Mm. Actually, it made them worse, right? People started having lower mood after sex and it became more of a chore and less enjoyable. And so, you know, this idea that, you know, the more sex you have, the better is is one of the biggest myths out there. Um, and, and a tough one, because like I said, it's, it's easy to count. And so then it becomes easy to fight about. Yeah. Yeah, sure. and, and people have varying degrees of sexual desire as well that you have to like you need you need to consider within relationships, and probably ebb, there's a significant ebb and flow uh, throughout the relationship. Yeah, and you know, it, part of that throughout the relationship thing is that just over time we become less and less interested. You know, it, it's something like three three percent per year. You know, the amount of sex that we have declined, so that you know, by the time you're forty, you're almost having let, half as much sex as you were when you were twenty five, and so. You know, over time, it's necessarily going to go down. And so, if you're emphasizing the amount of sex that you're having, you're, you're banking on a dying industry, mm -hmm. right? And as as exciting as sex is, um, we habituate to everything. You know, we adapt. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if that's where you're placing all the emphasis of your relationship's happiness and satisfaction on, you're you're just you're destined for failure because you know, as exciting as sex was when you guys first got together. Chances are it's less exciting five, 10, certainly 20, 30 years later. Yeah. I like, uh, you know, I really want uh, a Baconator from Wendy's, right? And so <laughs> I think about it all the time and then I go and get it. And then I go into this study and they tell me, Drake, you're going to eat a fucking Baconator every day <laughs> for 30 days. That Baconator ain't slapping the way it was the first time, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it, it makes sense, right? When you think of it, and we talked about this a little bit, or I talked about it a little bit with uh, Dr. Caitlin Goldsmith, you know, making sex fun and, and making appointments with sex is actually like an important thing because, you know, you want it and it's it's not an indication of, it's not predicting your relationship satisfaction, but if you really want to have sex, it, it's you're probably 
engage your partner and you want to do it, you know, making it so that you have to do it every day. I can see that, you know, not making things better. Yeah. And it still goes back to the same thing. It's not how much, right? It's a quality versus quantity issue, right? And so Baconator, depending on your feelings about that is, you know, maybe not the world's highest quality food. So would you rather have 10 Baconators or one like Michelin star meat? Right. Right. And so, you know, and the research shows, and it was a research study with older adults, um, the people who were most satisfied in the relationship were those who quote unquote had an expansive sexual repertoire, mm. right? Which, which sounds fancy. It just means, you know, they had more tricks up their sleeves or wherever they kept their tricks. <laughs> um, but you know, they, they're just, you know, it's quality. It's not, you know, let's do this 10 times or seven times or every day a week. It's like, you know, when, when you are engaging, um, in those physical acts with your partner, it's, do you know them well? And are you doing them? well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it's, it's such an interesting topic because I don't really know what the vibe is anymore because, you know, it's, it's always been like, oh, sex is so taboo. Religion's taboo. Don't talk about these things with others. But I feel like sex is becoming more relevant and more talked about in popular media. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just like, I'm biased because of the work that I do. No, I, I mean, I, Maybe I'm biased too, but I, you know, I would concur. I mean, I, I think it's just becoming more broadly acceptable. And yeah. talking about talking about the right things now is what's important about sex, not just talking about it. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, even just things like you know talking about the orgasm gap, and you know how men are more likely to have orgasms than women, and you know how that's been the case for you know all of time, perhaps. Um, but now, just actually having those conversations, saying how like, wait, that's that's kind of messed up. Like, why is that? Like that that shouldn't be. That's not fair. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if. You know, I, I can tell you, honestly, I now talk about that in my class, my relationships class, where 10 years ago, I didn't, it seemed like a little bit too like edgy. Mm -hmm. um, but now I talk about it with absolutely no, you know, hesitation and the students love that conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, it's just so, it's so interesting, because I think that, I mean, as I'm thinking of young, younger relationships as well, where sex is like, kind of like, <laughs> I think of the hormones that were going through my head as a child. <laughs> like, man, I just didn't know what, what was going on. But I mean, sex is such an important thing. And, and people attach different meanings to sex as well, I, like throughout their life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think early in a relationship, sex gets equated with love very easily because we have a lot of those, you know, hormones kind of pulsing through our veins and, you know, a lot of those strong attraction feelings. And so, you know, just because it all happens so early in a relationship, you're just always going to have more experience with that aspect of relationship. Right. I mean, it, it's only going to be a few relationships, perhaps, where you have the experience of what a relationship looks like after it's, you know, sustained for a year or two or five. Right. And so, you know, you just have more immediate experience with like when you fall in love, you have a lot of sex. And so we just kind of assume that it always perpetuates that way, mm -hmm. um, which, which is not a great assumption. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. No. And one more thing. Old people have sex too. That's like such a common misconception that like I just hate hearing these days. But like old people have sex. Like you don't stop having sex because you're older. It's true, right? It's something I was telling you about the sexual repertoire one. I mean, that study I think had a sample that went from 40s up into 60s. Um, you know, and it's like you know, apparently, you know, the, uh, the the nursing homes are a lot like college dorms. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Something to look forward to in old age, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> All I could think about while you were talking about some of the sex stuff is is innuendos that uh, <laughs> maybe I won't share on air. But uh, I suppose at the end of the day, what you're saying is that sex can't fill all the cracks in your relationship. There you go. Fill all the holes. Fill all the holes. <laughs> your words. Your words. <laughs> Gary, we know we know you're a busy man. You've got uh, you've got a number of other appointments today. So uh, we just wanted to thank you again for joining us today. We had a, as much of a good time today as we have in uh, previous chats with you. Great, yeah, guys. I always appreciate this. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you both. On uh, hopefully you and everyone else listening has a happy Valentine's yeah, Day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Happy Valentine's Day to uh, to you and everybody listening. With that said, how does somebody? Uh, where is somebody going to be able to pick up? Not only uh, your previous book, but your brand new one. I mean, you really can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Um, but the easiest way is if you go over to my website, www.garylewandowski.com. Um, all the links are right there. Um, but also while you're there, if you sign up for my newsletter, which goes out about once a month and sends you know just more empirical types of relationship um, articles and things, um, you also get a copy of a previous book I worked on, The Science of Relationships, um, which I wrote along with uh, several of my relationship scientist colleagues. 
Fantastic. So make sure to go to GaryLewandowski.com if you want to order Stronger Than You Think, the 10 blind spots that undermine your relationship and how to see past them. Uh, or go to Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, uh, chapters Indigo, Indigo, Chapters, where, iBooks, whatever whatever Wherever place you book. read books. And, <laughs> and uh, it'll be there. Um, uh, so in, make sure to check that out and uh, leave it a review. Leave us a review. Fun. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> uh, while you're at it, you know. Uh, Gary... Uh, Gary's been a wonderful guest and we really do appreciate uh, all the amazing work that he's put into that book. With that, we'll wrap up another episode of Brain Buzz. Thanks everybody for tuning in. You can follow Brain Buzz on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Head over to brainbuzzpod.com to get all the latest info about uh, episodes, content, whatever it might be. And join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Brain Buzz Pod. Until next time, cheers. cheers. cheers.